We are so humbled, honored, excited, delighted, and ecstatic to have a living hip hop legend, a hip, a certified hip hop legend, come on to this moment. Sophia Chang, welcome to the podcast. How are you? (laughs) (laughs) Via New York City, via, you know, um, the trenches of the golden era of hip-hop um it's just it's an honor my hat is literally off oh that's really that's a really humbling introduction thank you so much i am so excited to be here marcus and i did a podcast a couple of weeks ago we were just like oh my god oh my god oh my god (laughs) i was so excited so i'm amped to be here thank you for having me sophia i mean there's so much that you know i as a lifelong hip-hop fan, uh, a hip-hop artist myself. I mean, there's so much I want to ask you, but we somehow we got to start from the beginning. Tell us a bit about the beginning. Tell us about the beginning of Sophia Chang. Uh, Vancouver, Canada, born to uh, immigrant parents. Like, what went into the early making of Sophia Chang? Uh, well, you could probably do it better than me. Uh, my mother is from North Korea. My father, God rest his soul, is from South. They emigrated to Vancouver, Canada. Um, I was born in 1965. That means I came of age in the 70s. I was like many immigrants, first-gen immigrants of color. I was, I wanted to be white. I was a yellow girl in a Mm -hmm. white world who wanted Mm -hmm. to be white. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have this story in my memoir, Baddest Bitch in the Room, now on sale at all fine booksellers. Um, where I talk about, you know, I grew up watching the Partridge family, the Brady Bunch, and I was in my bedroom and I, I was pretending I was Lori Partridge playing the keyboards. <laughs> I was totally into it. And then I looked in the mirror and I was really taken aback to see my face. I completely expected to see a white face. That is so mm-hmm. bonkers mm-hmm. to me. But yeah. that's how deep my desire was to be white, because, you know, in no uncertain terms, I w- it was clear to me I didn't have the language that I was other right and mm-hmm. therefore lesser mm-hmm. and then in the 12th grade i heard the message by grandmaster flash and the furious five and as the brits would say it totally did my head in <laughs> no but you know i grew up in sweden at, at you know 80s 90s to something that I can imagine a similar situation that you're describing, like growing up in an environment that was for all intents and purposes, entirely white and with very little uh, representation of people and people of color in this country doing things like yet. And still something in you, you did, you weren't stopped at that because I imagine then you growing up watching these TV shows and not seeing any people of color, any uh, Asian Americans, any, you know, uh, very few women doing things yet. And still you had that drive in you was born. Where do you think that comes from? Well, at the time I wasn't aware of it. Right. So I wasn't Mm -hmm. sitting there as a 10 year old, a 12 year old, a 15 year old, even as a 20 year old, as a young adult, I wasn't going, where am I? Where am I? I wasn't that Mm -hmm. keyed in. Right. I also think Mm -hmm. that such is, am I allowed to curse? Yeah, absolutely. Um, (laughs) Yeah, we encourage it. Such is the fuckery of white supremacy and patriarchy, right? Mm -hmm. We internalize Mm -hmm. so much horrible shit that we ourselves are brainwashed. So it wasn't until Mm -hmm. much later in life that I became aware that I was not seeing myself on screen. Where did my drive come from? Um, So my mother told me that I was born with a confidence that I would say I describe it as being this kind of Kevlar titanium level of confidence. I was also born with my father's temper and sense of righteous indignation. And I was born to parents who, despite being Korean immigrants who were born in 1931 and 1932 and lived through the Korean war were remarkably progressive. So Did they want me to follow the path of academia like they, everybody else had? Absolutely. But they also didn't ever really question me when I pursued my passions. And it's only in retrospect, frankly, once I wrote my memoir that I understood how remarkably 
atypical my parents were. You know, most of my first gen Asian friends um, did not have the same experience as me. So I think part of it was nature, right? This confidence and this passion and this kind of righteous anger. And then part of it was nurture, which was my parents not encouraging me, right? My parents weren't like, Sophia, you could do whatever you want. That's not how Asian immigrant parents talk. <laughs> yeah, it was no. it was more I hear you. there. It was more their silence in stopping me from doing what I wanted to do. And I also think, to some degree, that they understood that what saying something to me probably would be um, pretty futile. What I think is amazing, right? There's, there's actually a couple of things in this. There are some hidden gems here. First of all, Vancouver, Jason is, you know, you think about Canada, how it's laid out, right? Toronto has amazing Jamaican food. Uh, if you're in Montreal, you have a lot of sort of Arab and the French influence in terms of food. Uh-huh. But Vancouver has incredible, all Asian, like from Chinatown to Korea. So that's a hidden gem. Uh-huh. When you tour in uh-huh. Vancouver, uh-huh. Jason, you're going to, uh-huh. you have to eat I like some of the best Asian food in North America is. And also, of course, British Columbia was famed in the 90s for having the best weed in the world, (laughs) even though even though maybe California would, you know, try to step up and say, well, listen, you know, um, but. So there's hidden gems there. But like (laughs) no matter how progressive your parents are, when you come and say to them, fast forward to the mid 90s that, hey, I'm going to manage a group called an underground hip hop group called Wu-Tang Clan. That is not the first, hi mom, how are you doing? That I don't care who you are. That is a conversation opener to any immigrant fa- family, right? And at the same time, your brother is like progressing in this life, going the academia route and crushing it. So you have the brother doing good. Yes. And then you have this, why are you never acting the way we tell you? What, what's happening here? Tell us that. Yes. Look, my, I grew up in the shadow of my brother. He sucked my whole life, my whole life. Mm-hmm. I mean, we went to the same elementary school, high school, college, took the same classes. And it was always, oh, you're he sucks sister. My brother, I always say, is the 10 smartest people I know. And he was he went followed that prescribed path and he's brilliant at it. And he should be doing that. You know, um, until I wrote a book, I don't actually think my mother could have described what I did. So until I was 52 and she could call me a writer, you know, what does she say to her octogenarian Korean immigrant friends when they're at the buffet cracking open King Crab Legs, right? Well, what's Sophia doing? She's managing rappers. What are rappers? What does manage mean, right? Like, what the fuck? What does that? What does that even mean? And I act, and a lot of my friends have this experience. I develop television shows for the. What does develop mean? And what is a show now that there's Netflix? So, mm-hmm. um, it was again. What was really beautiful, Marcus, about my parents is that I could never expect them to truly understand or be hip hop fans. Right. But they really respected Mm. that I did it. I have a very distinct memory of going home um, and I had a cassette of uh, Cool G Rap, um, The Streets of New York. And I played it for my mother and line Mm -hmm. by line, I would stop it and I would recite it to her and I would break it down like poetry and explain to her what this meant and why it was meaningful to me. And she sat there patiently and she listened to every single line of G-Rap. And that to me was, again, it's a silent support, right? So she's not saying, Mm -hmm. go back there and do this. But in her not saying, this is ridiculous, what are you doing? It was a form of support. Hey there, everybody. My name is Sophia Chang. I'm the baddest bitch in the room, and you are listening to This Moment. I'd like to eat Marcus's cooking, but he's being fucking stingy. Fucking <laughs> Ebenezer over there. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You came to New York, you landed a job as an A&R at Jive Records, which, which was huge in the smack dab in the middle of the golden era. We're talking Tribe, BDP. Like, how was it entering that world as, uh, as a woman, young woman coming from Canada to New York City and, and entering the hip hop world? Like at that level. And Asian, right? So I was a minority within a minority within mm. a minority within a minority. Mm. Black mm. music, hip hop, woman, mm. Asian. Asian. Um, again, I have the language to talk about this now, you guys, mm. right? Mm-hmm. In retrospect, I can say that I was that, those things. I wasn't thinking about it. I was 22 when I moved to New York, skipped my graduation. I graduated mm. technically, but I skipped my graduation. Shout out to all the uh, immigrants out there who skipped their graduation. Um, mm. And, you know, at the time, Jason, the New York City hip hop scene was very, very small. And mm. all of us were all in the clubs, the, all the pillars, right? MC, DJ, mm. graph, breaking, as well as every aspect of the industry. So not just the A&R people, not just the managers, but also the attorneys, the publicists, the booking agents, mm-hmm. and the, the, uh, uh, the accountants. I mean, everybody was there. So it was very easy to get into the scene because it was so small. There were, very, there were no barriers to entry. How did mm-hmm. I feel? Um, of course, I could see, you know, typically that I don't, I don't look like everybody else and not that many people, but remember that New York is uniquely diverse. And um, Marcus and I talked about this is one of the reasons that I insisted on raising my children here. And Mm -hmm. the hip hop scene was so welcoming and I had so few moments of feeling like an outsider. I was taken under wings immediately. Uh, Mm -hmm. Two of the first people that took me under their wings were DJ Scratch, right, of EPMD, mm-hmm. the greatest turntablist yeah. of all time, in my opinion, mm-hmm. and Crazy Legs, the co-founder of Rocksteady. Rocksteady. And they immediately, so when you have people like that, of that stature, making you feel welcome, it, mm. then it mitigated, it diminished my own doubts about what am I doing here? But doing the job was different than hanging out at the clubs. Right. Mm -hmm. So hanging out at the clubs, everybody's hanging out at the clubs. But then, as Marcus said, I get this job doing A&R, which is, for all intents and purposes, the most important job at a label because you are the talent scout. And without Mm -hmm. the talent scout, you don't have the talent. Without the talent, you're not selling the records. Right. So it's at the Mm -hmm. core Mm -hmm. of the of the uh, financial model and the financial success. That's when I suffered imposter syndrome. And again, I was, you know, buttressed by all these people saying, you know, yes, you can do this job. I recently, only a couple of years ago, I spoke to Chip Fu, who's the lead MC of the Fushnik, the mm-hmm. first group that I signed. And he said, you know, so I remember you used to say that. You used to say, mm-hmm. how can I as an Asian woman be doing hip hop? We never, ever, ever thought about that. Um, mm-hmm. Another example, when I did this uh, interview, with- did you I, I, let me just uh, let me just interject for a sec. Did you experience that there might have been some like exotification? I'm just thinking Fushnikins. It's not a group that I uh, talk too much about with people today, but that I loved back then. And they had this, well, it's a very Asian aesthetic, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, the the whole yeah, and Chip Fu is also the only MC I've ever heard rap backwards. Yeah, no, he's, uh, which is he's a monster. Still on, yeah, he's a he's, monster. It's just crazy, crazy flow. Like, 
I'm thinking in a way they must have loved you because you were Asian also. Is that like so so two things. Um one, if they love me because I was Asian, it was never expressed. Of course they appreciated no. it, but I walked a fucking razor thin tightrope mm. being a woman, an Asian, mm. a petite Asian woman in an extremely male testosterone misogynist milieu right um yeah so was i desired by people i'm sure i was but i never i never felt it in any ways that felt like they were impinging on my ability to do my job because my thing and to Mm -hmm. this day my thing is you might look at me and go Uh, She's hot. I really want to fuck her. But if you talk to me for three seconds, you're going to be like, yo, she's fucking brilliant. I want to make money with her. I want to work with her. So again, it's this tightrope that we walk as women, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Is that, you know, because you men are so basic, (laughs) men desire women so readily and so handily. So we have to do this dance where we're like, I'm okay with you desiring me. I don't have a problem with that, but it is, but you cannot desire me at the price of respecting me and to some degree fearing me. Right. So, um, if the foo ever felt that way about it, I never felt even a fucking shred of that, not a shred. Mm. And in terms of them themselves, right. I think about the video that we did where they were in Chinese takeout boxes and they were wearing the coolie hats mm-hmm. and the outfits and everything. Mm-hmm. We would never make that video today, but at the time course, it did not strike course. me as being racist. I also never thought that they were racist. I never thought mm-hmm. that what they were doing was fetishizing Asian culture. I believe mm-hmm. that they truly loved Kung Fu movies and it wasn't this, it wasn't kind of, um, a little trinket that they dangled on their arm just for stylistic purposes. So I want to ask you about uh, the moment where Riza and the team and you guys decide we're going to do this together because uh, how was that? And how many were there in the team? And, uh, you know, <laughs> there's so many questions. And how does one manage all their uh, That was like <laughs> a management um, class in itself. Right. You can teach at Harvard and <laughs> well, get first, a bad. I, I managed ODB. I never managed Wu-Tang Clan. Everybody okay. thinks that. And it's fair to think that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually called Rizzo once and I said, hey, you know what? People, there's this article that came out and they said that I managed Wu-Tang Clan. And I, you know that I would never say that. And he was like, so it doesn't matter. People are just going to say that. That's not within your control. Um, but yes, I managed ODB, God rest his soul, RZA and Jizza. So the conversation, so I first met RZA, right? And then he introduced me to the rest of the guys. I don't think he realized what he had unleashed when we met because I was like, I'm never letting go. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> when did you meet him? When I met when him in where? the summer of 1993 when they were recording the album. Uh, because I right heard protect your neck had dropped. Yeah, so right? we I'd heard the demo mm-hmm. couldn't sign them because RZA famously or some would say infamously asked for a non-exclusive deal, which is brilliant. You know, a non-exclusive deal means I signed Destiny's Child as Columbia Records. I have the exclusive rights to release their albums, their solo albums. Right. Mm-hmm. RZA mm-hmm. got a non-exclusive deal, which with nine MCs who are all that promising, nobody was going to do that except for Loud records. And they, it was a great benefit to them uh, mutually. So I couldn't sign them. And then I got the demo for the grave diggers, which was this horrorcore group. And that mm-hmm. I was able to sign. I could, I didn't end up getting the deal, but I was able to. And that's when I first met him. And then through him, I met the other guys and dirty was the last one that I met in a nightclub crowded nightclub. There was gunfire, which was actually not uncommon back in the day. And I just mm-hmm. remember him like, pulling me to the ground immediately pulling me to the ground and being like, and, 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 and I was freaked out, you know, I'm not used to gunfire. And I just remember looking at him and he was laughing so hard. He was so crazy. Um, so the conversation around management Marcus happened, we were really good friends, dirty and I, and one day he mm. just sat me down in the lobby of my building and he was like, Sophie, I got to talk to you. And I was like, what's up, A? Because I call I call him A, which is short for Asan Unique, his righteous 5% name. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he said, um, 
you know, I love the shit out of you. <laughs> and I was like, I love you too. Eh? And he was like, I want you to manage me. And you could have knocked me over with a feather. Um, and I went upstairs. I said, I got to think about it. I called my girlfriend, Joan Morgan. And she said, so if you've got to do it, you know, you know what you're getting into, you've got to do it. And it sounds oxymoronic. And to some degree it was, there was a lot of damage control. Uh, you know, he definitely had demons and he had um, addiction issues. Um, but God, was he special? <laughs> he was so special. So yeah, that's I mean, how that happened. Just the the level of creativity in hip hop in the early nineties too, where you could, you know, despite maybe the the cultural faux pas of it, but have groups like Fushnikins or even the early Busta Rhymes, and then along comes ODB. I remember being at uh, at like a an around party for the new music seminar in nineteen ninety three, and Protect Your Neck had come out and everybody was talking about this. This track was pl played on the I just remember seeing because uh, uh, people were talking about two MCs like Method Man and ODB and Method Man. I think he had he, he he got on the mic, but ODB grabbed the mic and said, I don't even have to say nothing. Y'all already know my status. And the crowd just died like it was just like it just cemented his legendary status already then, you know. And then, of course, just like with Chip Fu has this very unique and inimitable style how was it how was it how was he to work with you know dirty mm. um so i wasn't managing him until after the album had been recorded but okay. working with him as a manager you know going on promo tours with him and traveling with him it was hard it was hard mm. um Dirty didn't do dirty to say the least. I can, I can imagine. I can imagine. Dirty didn't yeah. touch drugs when I managed him. In fact, he couldn't even stand the smell of weed. I remember he was like, yo, man, put that shit out. I hate the smell. I hate that smell. <laughs> um, but he drank. Um, I believe he was a sex addict. Uh, you know, we would pull into a town and I would go to the gas station and I would go buy a box of condoms and I would knock on his door and I would give him the condoms. I don't know if he ever used them, um, but I would be like, you've got to use these. Um, there were times that, you know, how many flights did he miss? Um, how many <laughs> interviews was he late for or did yeah. he miss? But this is also not mm -hmm. unique to Dirty, right? Back in the day, no, in those days... There were a lot of rappers and hip hop groups that just were late or didn't show up or, you know, OK, we got you a car to take you home from the show. And then they would take that shit and go to fucking Connecticut and go see a girl. Right. Um, <laughs> but we also we meaning the people in the industry, we enabled that behavior. We let mm. that happen. Mm. And so there was this kind of um, complicit, right, a complicity that it was just kind of like, well, you know what, that's, uh, that's hip hop. And I wished for my part that I had been kind of stricter and more strident about it. But, you know, so those were the difficulties in, in managing dirty, but that they, they're so small compared mm. to the joys mm. and the pride, you know, I mean, mm. I don't know that I've ever seen somebody perform better than dirty. Uh, he was so stellar on stage. He came so alive. He had so much energy and ingenuity and passion and creativity. And it's like this well just came up from inside of him and he was on. He was so on. And in every single show, Every time I would just stand at the side of the stage and be like, yo, this is incredible. I would venture mm. to say that he was more alive on stage than he was anywhere else. And then there were really mm. beautiful, quiet moments. You know, we would mm. be in the car or he would be at my house and we would just be listening to old school R&B. Every member of Wu-Tang Clan is a huge fan of old school R&B. Marvin Gaye, mm -hmm. Al Green, Curtis Mayfield, you know, the Isleys. And we would That's just be driving life. around yeah. 
and I had this tape of R&B, like 60s and 70s R&B, and he would just be singing at the top of his lungs. And there were so those moments of intimacy where we were just it was like a buddy movie. Right. Um, And Dirty used to say this thing to me. (laughs) He used to say. You know, I love the shit out of you, Sophie. Because when I'm around you, I don't have to be old, dirty bastard. I can be a son unique. Mm. And. That was so meaningful to me because it means that as much as he saw me, he saw that I saw him. Hmm. Um, And I would probably say that for most of the artists that I have had these enduring friendships with. And that is that I only ever loved them for the people that they were. I, of course, was a fan and I respected and I acknowledged their talent. But the, the lasting connections that I have with my artists hmm. are deeply human. Hmm. And there is an intimacy there that um, I think is really rare. And it's bilateral, right? So it's not necessarily, oh, Sophia Chang is such an extraordinary person that Wu-Tang loves her. No, it's... I, you know, and I hope people get this from my memoir. You can flip that lens and say, but aren't Wu-Tang Clan extraordinary for seeing Sophia for who she was and loving her and mm-hmm. valuing her mm-hmm. for who she was mm-hmm. and appreciating that and making her feel welcome and special and putting her in the, in a throne. Um, mm-hmm. So managing dirty was, it, it only lasted, I don't know, maybe six months. Um, okay. But I would, I don't regret a minute of it. As hard as it could be, as frustrating as it could be, it was one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. And it was life defining because he was my first management client. And, and then I managed essentially for 25 years. You're leaving the music industry to just, not just to get married, you get married to a martial artist that is also a celebrity at that point. Tell us about that. So this is, you know, one of the beauties, and you know this, Marcus, one of the beauties of writing a memoir is that it challenges you not only to remember, Mm. not only to interrogate, but to study your past. Mm. And I only came to this in writing the memoir. So I meet Wu-Tang Clan. I remember, I'm the yellow girl who wanted to be white, who never studied Kung Fu, who never watched Kung Fu movies, who wasn't a huge Bruce Lee fan. And Wu-Tang Clan, their whole ethos, of course, is based around martial arts movies and John Woo movies and really into Asian culture, right? And so through them, through this chamber, I start to recognize, wow, this is really cool. You know, they kind of hold the mirror up to me. And so... I'm like, okay, let me start watching these Kung Fu movies that they keep talking about and sampling. I start watching Kung Fu movies. My girlfriend, Maria Ma, and I are like, let's take Kung Fu. And so we start looking for Kung Fu schools. And then we hear there's a Shaolin monk teaching Kung Fu in New York City. So for those of you who don't know, Shaolin Temple is the mecca of all martial arts and the founding place of Chan Buddhism, which many of us in the West know as Zen Buddhism. Hearing that there is a Shaolin monk teaching Kung Fu in New York City is like hearing that Serena is teaching tennis, LeBron is teaching basketball, or Tiger is teaching golf Uh right down the street. So we Uh find him, we hunt him down. It's February, it's freezing cold. We walk into the temple and we sit there. He doesn't speak any English. I don't speak any Mandarin. My girlfriend speaks Mandarin. She does all the talking. And I'm just looking at him and I'm listening to him and I'm looking at the pictures on the wall, looking at him and going, God, is that the same guy? Because he looks super ferocious in these pictures. And then he's just this Mm -hmm. kind of unassuming guy in a long brown wool monk's robe. And I went home that night and I called my parents and I said, I met the man I'm going to marry today. I don't know how I knew you guys. Wow. It was without being able to really speak to him either. Yes. That's incredible. Exactly. And it wasn't, um, and you know, this is how God is great, right? It wasn't this, uh, the French would say, coup de foudre, 
right? It wasn't a lightning bolt. It wasn't like, you know, in a fucking rom-com where suddenly, you know, you're showered by rose petals and everything happens in slow motion. No, I was like, um, it's snowing today. And I met the man I'm going to marry. And my father immediately went and uh, he looked it up while we were on the phone. He's like, oh, Shaolin Monks can marry again. You know, my parents were like, are you out it's of very your pragmatic. mind? Right. They weren't, yeah. they, 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 they didn't question it at all. And I started training and that summer, uh, May, that it was my 30th birthday. I went to Korea for the first time. I went to Hong Kong and I was talking to my girlfriend, Marie, and I was like, what should I do? I think I'm falling in love with them. She's like, oh my God, stop saying that about our seafood. Uh, and she said, Sophia, you're going to go back home. You're going to spend as much time with him as possible. And if nothing else, you'll have a great friend. And I started training on February the 10th. And five months later on July the 10th is when it, you know, we, it was clear that we were going to be a couple. And then he moved in right away. There was no really, there wasn't really a courtship, right? There wasn't really a, should we, should we, it was so palpable to us. Mm. Um, and he was living at the temple in a room that was like, his bedroom was probably fuck six by 10. Uh, couldn't even fit a bed in there, but he's, you know, he's a monk. He's used to sleeping on the floor. He doesn't give a shit. And he moved into my place and then I was training 15 hours a week and I left the music business because I knew that this is what I wanted to do. His lifelong dream was to replicate the Shaolin Temple in America. And I believed in that. And we, you know, we built uh, the temple together and we had two children and it was incredible. And I trained Kung Fu six days a week to this day. Like I just finished a couple hours wow. ago and I've been training for 26 years. Wow. And and what language is your like the language you speak to each other in today or and, and throughout your relationship? English. Um, I learned English. Okay. I learned a little bit of Mandarin, but it was really in English. But as a result mm. of being with him, my Mandarin is actually better than my Korean. Both are abysmal. Let me let me just make, <laughs> just make this clear. Um, my Korean, I think I've got like um, I think I've got passable restaurant Korean. Like that's about it. That's the limit of it. Mm -hmm. And my Mandarin is a tiny bit more sophisticated, but we spoke, we spoke English. And I mean, I think about like, I imagine you and Riza and Jiz are still friends to this day. I mean, how they must be extremely impressed with your kind of Shaolin. You, I mean, they went from naming Staten Island, like the world found out about Staten Island through Wu-Tang Clan calling it Shaolin. And then you actually went on and, you know, became a Shaolin yeah. uh, practitioner, warrior, a uh, 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 yeah. practitioner. Yeah. Um, so I introduced Riza and Jizza to Yan Ming the night of the Liquid Swords release party. I think it was in Tribeca. Uh. And it was this really special moment, you know, album release parties, you guys have been to them. It's just a swarm of fucking bodies, right? Um, <laughs> but I have, like, for 30, you know, how fucking long have I been here? Um, 87, 34 years, I have learned the skill as being little as, being as, as little as I am, I can really navigate through a crowd. And I just remember pulling Yan Ming and finding Riza and finding Jizza. It is Jizza's album release party. It is insane in that bitch. And I was like, nope, we're finding them. And I just made my way. <laughs> and that moment of introducing Riza and Jizza to a 34th generation Shaolin monk was <laughs> you, if you wrote it in a show or a movie, people would be like, that's bullshit. Right. So mm -hmm. what I was going to say about full circle and what I didn't realize Marcus until I wrote my memoir was if it wasn't for Wu-Tang, I wouldn't have started watching Kung Fu movies. If I hadn't started watching Kung Fu movies, I wouldn't have started a training. If I hadn't started training, I wouldn't have met a Shaolin monk. If I hadn't met that Shaolin monk, I wouldn't have, you know, married him unofficially and had children. So if it wasn't for Wu-Tang Clan, I wouldn't have the kids I have today. What a, what a gift. And we did exactly what we were supposed to together. And again, I say God is good, right? God is great.
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Your story for me is the ultimate New York story. You know, the way you grabbed the city, the way the city created space for you, the way you, for me, like, if I would say, how should you live in New York City? (laughs) Sophia Chang is the example because you are the fullest example of, for me, at least as a creative, this, you are a reason why I would move to New York City, right? And because you're living a full life, to the fullest and it's so inspirational also one thing as a creative we love complex situations right like we're creative and i'm like going from working to wu-tang to working with d'angelo i mean you these are my heroes but it's also the most complex people in the world <laughs> yeah i was i was about to say i mean we have to talk a bit about d'angelo because uh odb mythical and legendary uh uh a creature of the musical universe, there is another, and that is D'Angelo. And you, you end up managing him. How did that come about? And how was that? Um, first, I just want to respond to what Marcus said. That's so mm. gracious and so magnanimous, Marcus. Thank you. Um, I do try in my life to live the fullest life that I can while being kind and being of service. And I hope that if I inspire people, that they are inspired to do the same no matter where they are. That, you know, I believe that God put us here to be in service of other people. That's, I think that that's what we're all doing. Um, So thank you for that. Managing D'Angelo, there is a gentleman named Dominic Trenier, God rest his soul. 
uh, who was D'Angelo's, probably one of his closest friends and kind of his manager, well, was his manager for a long time and was always very, very close to him. And he hit me years ago and said, Sophia, uh, I think D should go train with your ex. And I said, okay. And he said, here's his phone number, call him. He's expecting you to call him. And if you think about the Venn diagram of Sophia Chang and D'Angelo and how big the overlap is, I can't believe we never met. He thinks we met. I don't actually think we ever met. Um, And the first time we talked on the phone, we talked for 90 minutes and he said, I love you three times, not in a romantic way at all, but in a very spiritual way. And the other thing he said on that call that really struck me was, Sophia, I'm a God-fearing man. And yeah. I, that really resonated with me because he was so earnest about it and so fearless in saying it, you know. And, you know, he was raised in the church. It's where he came up. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And we just talked about, you know, when is he going to put out his record? And I told him, you know, I think we're all divine vessels. And some of us choose to share those gifts and some of us don't. And I said, you have a gift, you know, God gave you a gift that first of all is singular. And second of all is one that's to be shared. I wasn't telling him anything that he didn't know. And I always say that when D'Angelo opens his mouth, he sings straight to God. Um, And of all of my friends, I would say that D'Angelo's language of love, and again, I'm talking platonic love, language of love, Mm is the most potent I've ever heard. And how are any of us surprised by that? Of course not. Uh, You know, uh. I have moments of self-doubt and I'll call D'Angelo and he will just say something so beautiful and so poetic that just reinforces my belief in myself. Like, nah, so come on. And, you know, he just says things to me about who I am and what I do and how I move that make it very clear again, like Wu-Tang Clan, that he sees me with such perspicacity, with such transparency, with such clarity and with so much love and having somebody, having a friend like him who is as brilliant as he is recognize my brilliance is one of the greatest gifts in my life. He is also, um, I think he's probably figured out my trick. He's also a little bit of my human jukebox. Like (laughs) I remember I called him one night and I was like, oh, I was just listening to uh, Luther's Never Too Much. Mm-hmm. And never too much. Never oh. too much. <laughs> he starts singing it, right? Yes. And I was like, oh my Man. God. I'd kill to hear D'Angelo sing. From that. the second chorus through to the end. <laughs> yeah, every man. fucking ad lib there are a lot. Luther ad libs a lot. Mm-hmm. God rest his soul ad libs mm-hmm. a lot in that song. Pitch. Mm-hmm. I was like, do you fucking have p- perfect pitch? He was like, I don't know. I was like, I think you have perfect pitch. And then we would talk about other things. Like he, D'Angelo was the first person to tell me to listen to So Amazing, which is another Luther song. And, mm-hmm. you know, he prefaced it by singing it. Um, and then he called me on my- Which is a good introduction to it. Exactly. I mean, probably called, the yeah, best introduction I mean, you can get to Hearing D'Angelo sing Luther Vandross is like, mm-hmm. is this real? Like, these are the gifts, right? <laughs> I, and he called me on my birthday in 2019 and uh, he was like, I'm not going to sing happy birthday. So I was like, oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> but he is still a dear friend and he and- is an exceptional human being. But and I think he- also these men, these incredible people, these people that you are around, they also learn a lot from you. And you remind me of a friend, God. Um, she passed away a couple of years ago, Miss Alberta Wright. Mm-hmm. She came uh, to the city in the 60s, but she opened a restaurant called Jezebel's and and Alberta would have Denzel Washington, Madonna, everybody in the room. But it was, Alberta was the biggest star, right? You were in her house, right? Madonna could be there, Dee could be there, but you were at Alberta's Mm -hmm. house. And I say that because with riding the baddest bitch in the room, for me, it ends with you going into the, after doing all of that, you, the choosing that happens is that 
of course you have your family and that becomes the most important thing. But then also you realize that you're going to go into all of this stuff with just preparation to go into the Sophia Chang business. And that's where for me, this is so you graduated and you did not skip your your own graduation this time. And now you are fully in the Sophia Chang business. Tell us what does that look like? What do we have coming up? What are we working on? Because that is very inspirational. Thank you. I'll tell you first about the transition, right? So in 2013, I believe, or 2014, Lean In comes out, Sheryl Sandberg's book about women and the will to lead or whatever. And I read it and I was like, this is not really by us or nor for us, despite uh, the gems that I pulled from it. And then I decided to write a memoir, Marcus, when I figured out again that I could be in service of other people. And it was only at that moment that I chose to step from behind the curtains into the spotlight. I mean, having worked with Paul Simon in 1987, coming off of Graceland, I was acutely aware of the price that one pays for abdicating your anonymity, right? I don't consider it gaining fame. I consider it abdicating my anonymity. So I decided that I was going to write a memoir and I was running Joey Badass's label, Pro Era Records. And I said, I'll run the label as long as I'm also writing. And I found that, you know, the book became my side piece that I totally ignored. And uh, I said to him after five months, I said, Joey, I can't do this anymore because I'm not writing and I know that I need to write. And he said, so if I love you and you need to write your book, you need to tell your story. And so I wrote my memoir and that was really my coming out party. Right. I call my I call my memoir a coming of age, one of my many comings of age. And what's been extraordinary, Marcus, is how supportive all of the artists in my life have been of me, you know, like I said to Ray Kwan, you know, Ray, it's so interesting because now I'm an artist too. And I'm on the same <laughs> side of the table as you. And he was like, so if you've always been an artist, I was like, what? He was like, you've always been an artist. I was like, really? He said, yeah, absolutely. And so they saw in me something that I didn't even really see in myself, but they've all been deeply supportive and really encouraging. And what that means, Marcus, and you know this just as well as I do, is that there are so many ways to tell our stories. So we did it in a very literal fashion. We wrote a book about our stories. You do it through your cooking. You do it through your podcast. There are ways that when we take on any kind of projects, any endeavors, we inform and infuse those projects with a piece of us, right? So I have sold the rights to my memoir to FX, and I'm developing it right now with FX and Pamela Adlon. Will it get on the air? I don't know. That's a fat ass camel. Okay. <laughs> through the eye of a, okay. It's a little ass camel through the eye of a fat ass needle. It will get on air. Mm-hmm. I'm also developing a number of other different television properties. And one of them is a Kung Fu show. It's period. And it centers a teenager, but she will definitely have my spirit. You know, um, mm-hmm. there will definitely be hip hop in there. I don't mean anachronistic. She's not going to say hip hop slang, but the hip hop spirit will be in her because those things are so inextricably linked for me, Wu-Tang Clan and hip hop and Shaolin Temple and Chan Buddhism. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to do, I'm developing many shows that I want to write. I'm going to be a showrunner. I'm sure of it. Um, I'm doing public speaking. I've got unlock her potential, which is probably going to be my greatest legacy as you know, which you're going to be a mentor for in 2022. Um, It's a program that I, created, which provides free mentorship for women of color, 18 and over in the United States. I believe that women of color are not mentored even close to the degree, which we should. And what's worse for many of us, it doesn't even occur to us to ask for a mentor. And what's amazing, you guys, is that the mentors are calling me saying, my mentee, Soph, she's fucking brilliant. And she does so much She's got this and this and she's got a family and she's got children and she's taking care of this person and that person. And she's got this main job and she's got her side hustle so much more enterprising and industrious than I remember being in my twenties or thirties, you know, and, Mm -hmm. you know, give us the chance. Just give us a fucking shot. I always say, just put me in the fucking room. 
put me in the room, open yeah. the door for me. And I will keep that bitch open and bring everybody in with me because you don't punch and kick your way through a door to have it slam behind you. Mm. It's not what we're doing here. You punch and kick your way and you keep that shit open and you kick it open with a Kung Fu kick. And you're like, come on, everybody come in with me. This mm -hmm. is what we're supposed to do. We are bound morally to do this. So those can I, I'm working on. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you, looking at the music industry and hip hop culture specifically that you entered late 80s, early 90s, and juxtapositioning it with uh, as a woman, as an uh, Asian American, Asian Canadian woman, juxtapositioning it with that culture today, the music industry, hip hop culture today, what has changed? How do you see those challenges for the, the young Sophia Changs of today entering the music business? Um, I'm not really qualified to talk about this because I don't really know what's going on in the music business anymore. Um, what I know is that certainly the world has flattened to some degree because of digital. And so the barriers to entry for a lot of people are no longer there. There are a lot more Asians in hip hop from what I can gather. There are a lot more Asian women, frankly, partially thanks to me. I blazed a fucking trail. You know? um, and I'm so happy for it. It's exactly what I'm talking about. I opened that door and many were able to come through after me, not just because of me, but partially because of me. Um, I don't, I would hope that two things. On the one hand, I would hope that the hip hop industry is as welcoming to a young Sophia Chang as it was to me back in the day. And I would hope that the young Sophia Chang understands her place in that world to the degree that she acknowledges her privilege. I believe anybody in hip hop who is not black or brown has to acknowledge their privilege, has to care about their artists beyond how much money they can make off of their artists. You know, I used to work with this artist named G Herbo, whom I adore. Not you know, it's, he's not my style of hip hop, but I love the man as a friend. And, you know, he, we, he was supposed to do the Red Bull music festival in LA. And I remember asking his product manager, a white woman at the time, um, what's going on with Herbo? When's he going to LA? And she was like, he's not going to LA until we move his mother out of the hood. Now, he lives in the east side of the south side of Chicago, which is notoriously the worst part of the south side of Chicago. And I remember calling him and asking him, what's going on with your family? Why are you so worried? And he told me what he was worried about. And I thought, she never fucking asked him. She never cared. All she cared about was hanging out backstage and fucking putting pictures on the gram and smoking blunts and being in the VIP. Like bitch, he is telling you he wants to move his mother because he is afraid for her physical safety. And the most empathy you can muster is a fucking dismissive roll of your eyes. That's what you can do. She doesn't deserve to be in hip hop. As far as I'm concerned, I Love Herbo. I care about him. And by extension, I care about his mother. I care about his little sister. I care about his family, his beautiful child and his wife. I mean, if, if you only want to take the surface of hip hop, then do that. But then you shouldn't be working in it. Right. Like my friend Kierna Mayo, she's brilliant. She was the editor in chief of Ebony magazine. And she did this fantastic cover that said America loves black people. And then she crossed out people and wrote culture. That was so illustrative of the attitude that I'm talking about. You can be a hip hop fan and do whatever the fuck you want to be, whoever the fuck you want. But if you're going to work in the industry, if you are going to make money, in this business, if you are going to raise your own profile, 
because of hip hop, you have to acknowledge your privilege and you have to have a fucking heart about it and understand what your artists are going through and care about them deeply because it is only because of them that you exist because a rapper can exist without a manager. A manager does not exist without a rapper. It's not just consuming the culture, but being in community with the culture that you're, you know, eating because of. Thank you for, you know, thank you for laying that out, yes, Sophia, because that needs to be said again and again. And it's not just in the United States, but, you know, living in uh, in Sweden, which is a country so influenced by American culture and particularly black American culture and the music and the music, really? you know, hip hop is huge as are, you know, and all the derivatives of hip-hop culture the fashion the language the the you know the attitudes and what hip-hop has essentially become global pop culture but at the same time people will gladly and happily consume the culture but when it comes time to be in community with it then there's a you know there's a barrier there's a perspective disparity or you know it, they just don't see it and this needs to be said again and again so th- i just want to thank you for 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 laying that out there no you're welcome but that's why privilege Absolutely. isn't it jason that's Absolutely. why privilege the fact is that i can listen to it but then i can engage only as far as i want to because that's not mm-hmm. me that's mm-hmm. not my life right um what whatever my artists are going through and it's and it's wanting to go mm-hmm. deeper this is why Mark, I say to Mark, Marcus and I are like, tell your mm-hmm. story, tell your story by telling our stories, thereby we build empathy. And in building empathy, so do we engender being seen as humans. Grant me access to humanity. You have also uh, mastered this in all through all of this. You also just happened to raise two amazing kids while doing all of this stuff, by the way. Right. The, the most the two most important thing that happened in life. So being a, a mother and then a single mother throughout all of this, that's that's also a book by itself, by the way. Right. So. um when you talk to your kids, how do they experience what you built, right? They can listen to the Wu-Tang's music. They can experience many different things. But um, how do they experience Sophia Chang, the mother? Well, they're 18 and 20 now, soon to be 19 and 21. And what I will say, first of all, me personally, I was a much was and am a much better mother of big kids than little ass kids. I'm not one of those women that's like, I miss having a baby. I'm like, I don't miss that shit for fucking Nathan, man. Uh, fucking, all the fucking paraphernalia, the wipe warmer, the diapers, the diaper bag. Did you remember the extra set of clothes for the airplane? The bibs, the tiny little plastic fucking spoons and sanit- you know, sanitizing bottles and all. I don't miss any of that. I also don't miss watching Barney and fucking Teletubbies. I love that my kids and I can watch Breaking Bad together. What a, I just think it's such an inspiring story. And Sweden is a country where a lot of us live by the norm or what we're supposed to. So your story is so needed because you have to write your own story. And that's what you've done. That's what you're doing. It's an original story where love and conquer and desire yeah, I mean, and all of it is in there, you know? Children. So the way that I'm speaking to you now is exactly how I've spoken to my children since they were born. I use the exact same tone phrasing, vocabulary. Both my kids have a really great vocabulary because that's been really important to me. It's one of my uh, weapons, right? Um, And, you know, the big change, of course, was not being with their father anymore, which was traumatizing for them like it is for all children. And then the next really big change was their mother coming out as the baddest bitch in the room. And I am very open about my sexuality. I am a sex positive feminist. And in my book, as you know, I talk about my dick index, which is the amount of men that I've had sex with. And I told them both, as well as my mother, that I was going to be public about it 
and I told them what the figure was. So my kids, like my kids, they just laughed. They're like, yeah, whatever. Like they <laughs> couldn't care about my mother. The body counts, the my, body counts. My, 80, my 86 year old mother, this was a very different story, but my kids, they see me for who I am and they appreciate what I'm doing, even though it might embarrass them to some degree, because they've been raised uh, by me. Uh, Do you know what I'm saying, Marcus? I have raised them to be the children to say, yeah, mommy, that's great. Like my daughter is um, studying environmental studies, right, in college. And she's taken to watching the news and listening to the daily podcast. She's very politically minded. And that's because she's coming to it herself, but it's also because she's watched her mother do that. Right. My kids, as your children will be, it's not extraordinary. It's not in, unique to my children. This generation, they're far, far, far more liberal than we were. They are being raised in a society where I remember my kids going, why do people even care if a gay couple wants to get married? Why? Like they, it was unfathomable to them that this was even a debate. You know, um, my kids believe in the Green New Deal. You know, they're, you know, again, she's, she's, she wants to save the world through the environment and they, I have to believe, and they feel this about their father too, that they understand that they are very much the product of their parents and better. If my daughter wants to do what I do, she fucking hands down, eyes closed, she could do it. My son, he can do anything he wants. And part of that, again, is nature. Part of it is nurture. And part of it is because they came up in the digital age where they have access to so much. Like my son started teaching himself how to code on Code Academy at 11. You think I could have done that shit at fucking 50? Like, no way. I would have been like, I have no idea what I'm doing. So they see me very much as the woman that I am. And at the end of the day, again, though there might be some things they're like, okay, mom, whatever. Um, They're very very proud of me. Do you cook a lot? Do you enjoy cooking? I'm a mother. Yeah. I'm a mother. I am Korean. I am an immigrant. No question about it. I don't want to spend money on yeah. takeout, right? So if I could cook it, I don't want to spend money. Yes, I cook mm. all the time. I cook Korean food. I cook pasta. Um, I make, uh, one of my favorite dishes, oh my God, is, uh, a salmon dish. It's this kind of peasant oh. salmon. It's this Korean peasant salmon, salmon fillets braised in like oh. a soy, a sweet soy sauce. Yeah. I cook all the and time, just, all the time. And just briefly before we go, the, what, what are the, uh, the dietary perspectives from, from like the Shaolin Buddhist, uh, point of view? Like how do they how do how do they oh, so, view food as far as it pertaining to uh, physical and mental health? I imagine it being deep, you know. They see food as being fuel for the mm. martial arts, for their mind, their body, and their spirit. So, in the 14th century, there was a general or leader named Li Ximin, and the Shaolin monks helped him defeat his rivals, and he granted them the special dispensation of being able to drink alcohol and wow. eat meat. And I think probably he slid in there fucking, but he wasn't overt about it. Um, so Shaolin monks are not okay. vegetarians. My ex was and is a carnivore and he can eat prodigiously. <laughs> um, food was really, really important to him. He took it very seriously. He was like, I don't want you to watch TV when you're eating, like focus oh. on eating. He definitely saw it as somebody that something that fed the mind, body and oh. the spirit. And I just want to thank you. I, uh, you know, as a lifelong lover of hip hop culture, uh, this has just Thank been Thank you so uh, much awesome. for having me. I'll see you in New York, Sophia. And you too, Marcus.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. You did something for the first time. 